Hello, hello, and welcome to Hear Her Sports. I am your host and producer, Elizabeth Emery, back with another terrific conversation about women in sport. But before we get to it, I'd like to tell you about another podcast about female athletes. On the Rise is the first podcast devoted to women's college tennis. On the Rise is a tennis channel podcast featuring compelling stories and unique voices in women's college tennis. Each episode highlights a college player as she reflects on her career on and off the tennis court. On the Rise is more than tennis. It is the next generation of women in sports. You can find the podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. What I like about On the Rise is how the athletes and the host are young and energetic. Listening to host Perry Shinen has been a real insight into college athletics and what comes after that. And now, on to our episode. I met today's guest, Tori Mather, through a listener and patron who mentioned that a rowing friend of hers had some interesting stories about being a lightweight rower. She wasn't kidding. Tori opens up the discussion about this weight class sport. I'm super interested in knowing more about how the lightweight category got started, so send me a note if you know that. In the episode, Tori talks about trouble she had with her period, her hormones getting wonky, and generally feeling miserable as a result of constantly focusing on keeping her weight down to make weight. She also has an insider's view of high school, college, and elite lightweight rowing, along with ideas for taking care of yourself as a younger athlete. Thank you to Jamie for connecting us. I always love hearing from all of you and being told about stories that interest you, so keep them coming. Now, let me introduce Tori. Tori Mather began rowing in high school after a friend convinced her to try a learn-to-row session. She rowed Division I at Marist College, where she was unanimously voted captain her senior year. After college, she moved to Philadelphia to focus on lightweight rowing from 2012 to 2014. During that time, she medaled at the head of the Charles and club nationals in the lightweight four. But after struggling to make weight and dealing with related health issues, she quit. Later in 2015, she returned to the sport by rowing masters at Vesper Boat Club. Since then, she has been a 14-time Masters National Champion, and she and her doubles partner, Shannon Kaplan, have never lost a race. She coached Masters women at Newport Aquatic Center in California for three years and is currently rowing out of the Three Rivers Rowing Association in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, welcome, Tori. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'd like just to start out with a discussion of what lightweight rowing is so that we can, I don't know, put us all on the same page and we know what we're actually talking about. Sure. So lightweight rowing is a category of rowing where the athletes have to meet a certain weight standard. I'm not 100% familiar with the men's weight standard, but for women, for uh, international competition, an athlete can be 59 kilograms maximum, which is a, about 130 pounds. And for team boats, so that's any boat that has more than one person in it, so a double, which would have two, or a quad, which would have four, the entire crew has to be averaged at 57 kilograms. That's about 125.6 pounds. And that means that the heaviest person in the boat could be the 59 kilogram max, um, can't be over, but then that means someone else has to be under the 57 kilogram average. And so that that practice is basically called taking weight, where you have someone who is, 
you know, quote unquote heavier, aka closer to max, and then you have someone who is under average and they they kind of average each other out. Well, my first reaction was like, holy crap, that's really light. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know how lightweight rowing started? Because I have a fantasy that it was, you know, people seeing all of the elite rowers being, you know, six foot tall and oh boy, wouldn't it be great for shorter people to do it? And so they created this lightweight rowing category. And then it got sort of bastardized. Yeah, I honestly don't know. But but knowing rowers, that probably sounds correct, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, because I mean, I love the idea of a shorter rowing class. Yeah, because I think, um, you know, people look at rowers. And I mean, I certainly looked at the people who were on the open weight national team as like, well, okay, I'm never going to be six, two. And I would love to do this. Like, how do I make that work? And so that's, that's where lightweight rowing comes into play. Right. So how tall are you? I am five, seven. Okay. And yeah. are lightweight rowers smaller, shorter? Yes. Um, I think that it's definitely very rare to have someone who's like six feet and 125 pounds. I think that the U.S. crew for the Olympics was maybe one was five, seven and one was five, six, something like that. So everyone is definitely shorter and smaller than some of the open weight athletes. It still sounds very light to me. I mean, I just I tend to be very I'm dense. You know, I've had those MRI tests where they test how dense you are. And I'm very dense, but 130 is not, would not be possible for me. And yeah. I'm 5'4". And I, I think that there are a lot of people where, and I mean, myself included, like it was a stretch, but that was kind of the only option for me, like wanting to continue rowing after college. There's not really m many options other than, you know, growing six inches, which... <laughs> is just not going to happen for most of us. Right. Um, so that's that's kind of how I fell into lightweight rowing is, you know, I wanted to do it after college and I knew that the only way to have any sort of shot was to row as a lightweight. Um, and so being kind of dumb and 22, I was like, yeah, this is a great idea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, uh, you know, was good and was also not good for for certain reasons. So... I sort of jumped the gum. So let's first go back. And you rode in college. Tell me yes. about that. And you did not row as a lightweight rower in college. Yes, that's correct. So I rode at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. It's a Division One team, but we did not have a lightweight team. And so while I was in college, I was kind of like, oh, man, like I'm on the smaller side. I kind of wish we had a lightweight team. But, you know, at that point I was at school. I wasn't going to transfer. I picked the school for my major. I didn't pick it. I kind of picked it for rowing, but I think like the school part was way more important to me. So I rode and we were kind of a smaller team. Like we were division one, but we weren't, you know, a Clemson or an Ohio state. We had people who were my size. I think they have been recruiting taller people now. When I look at the alumni Instagram, I'm like, oh man, I think I would be really short on that team now. But one of the things that happens in selection for certain teams is um, coaches will weight adjust 
ERG scores. So the ERG is a tool that is used to determine power, basically. So there are some standard tests that everyone who's a rower does on the ERG, you know, a 2K, a 6K, a 5K, a 10K. And the ERG basically rewards being bigger and longer and heavier. So some coaches will do something called a weight adjustment, but my college coach never did that. And so, I, you know, I kind of went through college rowing with a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, being like, I'm, you know, pulling the same scores as some of these girls who are 40, 50, 60 pounds heavier than me, and they're getting boated and I'm not. And I think that that experience you know, having potentially not the best collegiate rowing experience made me want to row after college in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the questions I had when you first were talking about being shorter at this college and not having a lightweight team was to sort of, to like, I found it frustrating as a shorter athlete rowing, because as you mentioned, there's no way to grow. You know, you yes. can train all you want, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> Yes, um, it, it definitely was. And I think, you know, team culture can kind of dictate like how you see yourself on the team. And so I think perhaps at, a, at another school under different coaching staff, I would have kind of seen myself a little differently. But I mean, I, I wasn't that good in college. So I think that I like thought I deserved seats that I probably didn't deserve for my ability at the time. I really only got a lot better at rowing once I moved to Philly after college. Oh, that's interesting. So let's go to that part. After college, you go to Philadelphia and tell us about that. Sure. So I knew probably like February or March of my senior year, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I'd originally gone into college as an education major because I thought I wanted to teach. Um, and then I did a little bit of student teaching and was like, oh my gosh, this is not for me. So I felt like very lost and kind of felt like the only thing I was good at or really loved was rowing. So I knew that in order to keep rowing and, and try to take my rowing to the next level, I had to go either to Philly or to Boston or Oklahoma City, which are kind of the three main areas, or at least at the time, were the three main areas where you could go, you could join a club, and you could train with people who were trying to make the national team. Um, and so I picked Philadelphia because it was closer to my family, and I just, oh, like, we raced there in college and in high school, um, and I thought it was a cool city, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna move to Philadelphia. <laughs> You mentioned some of the challenges that you had with the sport. So let's talk about that, because I'm assuming it has to do with the lightweight part. Yeah. So I kind of knew going to Philly that my only shot at like trying, even trying to make a national team was to be a lightweight. And so I lost 19 pounds between wow. my college graduation and my first regatta weigh-in, I think, on July 1st. Do not recommend that. That was not smart. I should have, I, you know, you're, you're 22. You're like, if I want to do this, I'm going to do this. And that's how it, it worked the first time. So I raced that summer as a lightweight, 
in the Penny Sea Summer Program, which is where like a bunch of people who are rowing in college come together and race all summer and do the summer circuit. And then everyone else, I would say most of the group was younger than me. So they all went back to college. And then I kind of joined the year round group at Penny Sea. And I think, I think like my first red flag was that as soon as I joined the group, I was just sick all the time. And it was very similar to like freshman year in college when you move into a dorm and, you know, you're basically living in a Petri dish and everyone has a cold from October to March and it's, it's pretty miserable. But I just like constantly was tired, which makes sense because I had ramped up my volume a lot, but I like, I had bronchitis and then I had a really bad cold and then they thought I had pneumonia for a little bit, but I wasn't really willing to take any time off of training because when you come into a club system like that, you know, you're kind of seen as the competition. It's not like college where you have a coach and you have dedicated equipment and you have support. It's very much, you know, if you want to row the best boat in the boathouse for your size, you kind of have to prove that you earned it. And, you know, the coaches only have so much time for so many athletes. So if if you want coaching time, you have to prove that you're good enough to earn coaching time. So I didn't take any time off, even when I wasn't feeling well, or even when I got injured. And I think that that kind of culture and just the way it was, and you couldn't really show any weakness. And I don't think that is specific to lightweight rowing, but I think it was exacerbated by the fact that I was trying to maintain a body weight that is really not my natural body weight. Sure. And how much, just to give us some background, how much rowing are you doing at this point? Um, so we basically had two a days every day, except for, I think we had Wednesday afternoons off and Sundays off. So we would do 90 minutes to two hours of rowing in the morning and then 90 minutes to two hours of rowing in the evening. And it would, it would vary depending on what part of the season we were in. In the fall, uh, the focus is on head racing, which is longer, longer races, so like 4K, 5K, that sort of thing. And then in the spring and summer, the focus is on the 2K, so shorter, more sprinty pieces. Are the people that you're rowing with, I mean, did you consider it a team or is it just sort of part of the, I'm, I'm a little confused about how that system works and if you consider yourself a team and you know, are you switching out boats or do you have a specific partner? And then are you traveling together for the same race? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, I think I would consider it a team. And I think that, you know, a lot of my very good friends, I met them while I was doing this. And so, you know, we really did consider ourselves a team, but everyone was, again, very much in competition with each other where, you know, if I was a lightweight and I wanted to row a specific boat in the boathouse and there was only one of them and someone else who was a lightweight came in, like I had to be faster than her so that I could row that boat and she would have to take a lesser piece of equipment and therefore be at a disadvantage to me. So it's definitely a team. You know, we traveled to races together. We trained together. That also was potentially part of the problem because I was one of a very few 
women at the club that I was at at the time. And so I was basically on a training plan that was meant for heavyweight men, which was not good. And I think being 22, not really, I didn't know anything about training cycles or like how your hormones and cycles impact when you're recovered and when you're not recovered. I just, I didn't know any of that. And if I went into that knowing what I know now, I would have definitely made some different decisions. Sure. I bet your coaches didn't know all that. Yeah. And I think that that is part of the problem that I see in lightweight rowing is that there are a lot of coaches who just, you know, they're not educated on the female body and nutrition. I don't think there's anything wrong with male coaches, but I think if you as an athlete are dependent on a male coach and you don't feel comfortable going to them saying, hey, I lost my period, like, can I talk to a doctor or can I take an extra rest day or basically just working together to figure out why that happened and and how to fix it, you know, that's really not going to be successful and, and could have long-term implications for your body. So my first season was summer and fall in Philadelphia. And then my first full year rowing lightweight was in 2013. And I was having an issue where every time we would taper, I would get an additional period. And so in 2013, I think I had 23 periods. And obviously, like, that sucks for any reason. (laughs) But it was especially challenging when trying to make weight because you'd have to race on a Thursday. And on the Saturday before, I'd be 129 pounds, like, perfectly good to go. And then on Wednesday, the day before the race, I'd get my period and be 134 pounds. And I never wanted to not race. So I would sweat out four pounds, three pounds, like enough that it was not smart, I would say. And so the first couple times it happened, I was like, okay, this is weird. Like, you know, maybe maybe I'm not doing something right. Maybe I need to be even lighter going into this. And then by the time it happened, like the sixth time, you know, I finally felt like I needed to ask for help to figure out what, you know, what was going on and and how, because obviously like if I'm in a team boat, I can't be depended on to be a certain weight if all of a sudden I'm four pounds heavier than I was three days ago. That was ultimately what led me to the decision to stop rowing at that level because I am someone who is like very team oriented and, you know, when I commit to something, I'm I'm fully in and it just like it was not working for my body and I couldn't be dependent on and and for me that wasn't going to work. Did you find help somewhere? So I started the process of talking to a doctor in Boston who was very involved with rowers. I think she was a rower herself, but I started working with her, I think like two months before I ended up just throwing in the towel and being like, you know what, this isn't worth it. I'm going to go and live my life and be 24 and go to happy hour and go to brunch and go out with my coworkers. And so I, I ended up kind of not really working with her very closely at all. But I I think that 
had I chose to continue rowing, like that would have been the correct path to go down. But I should have started working with her way earlier. And you're rowing now again. Yes. So I'm rowing masters now, which is it's significantly less competitive and stressful than what I was doing before. It does have lightweight. And so I have been asked by people on my team if I am interested in, you know, being a lightweight or being in a lightweight boat. And I have turned it down every time. I think that even though my body has kind of, as an adult at this point in my life, is actually way closer than I ever was to lightweight when I was actually training to be a lightweight, I just don't want, like, I think the flashbacks are just like a little too great at this point. I would consider it potentially. I I just came back from a race this weekend where I considered it for like five minutes and then decided not to race lightweight. If you had a do-over for your that period in Philadelphia, can you imagine a way that it would have worked? Yeah. So I think I would have just tried to have a better support team. I think I would have really researched like the type of coach that I wanted to have and the type of training plan um, and whether it was specific for lightweight women, I think I would have tried to work with a nutritionist, specifically a, a sport-specific nutritionist. I know a lot of health insurances actually cover nutrition sessions. I learned that like as an adult working in benefits and was like, oh, that would have been good to know that that was free when I was making $28,000 a year and trying to row 50 hours a week. I think I also would have done a lot more research on like the female body basically and how, like what are, what warning signs to look for with like a high volume of sport. When I stopped rowing, I actually lost the ability to sweat for like a year. I think because I had been trying to sweat out weight for races on a regular basis. And so my body just, I I had a really hard time regulating body temperature. And so like lost the ability to sweat to cool myself down and then was also like very cold all the time. And apparently like having done research now, that's actually pretty normal like when you lose a lot of weight or try to lose weight unhealthily and so I think like knowing some of those things now I would kind of know what to look for try to be a little more just try to be a little smarter about everything and I think that's that's kind of the advice that I would give anyone who maybe is in high school and wants to try lightweight rowing in college or maybe is in college and wants to try lightweight rowing after college is just like make sure that someone who has been through it before is the one giving you advice not someone who is an open weight man who you know might have been great at rowing but doesn't know what your body is going through i'm still stuck on the 130 pounds and just thinking that I mean, I know that I can't get down there because when I was racing professionally in cycling, you know, my lowest weight was 132 and that was when I got myself into some trouble. So I know that Mm -hmm. I can't get down there. So I'm just, it's just hard for me to imagine that a female endurance athlete 
could get to 130 in a healthy way. Yeah, I mean, I think for for certain types of bodies, it can be healthy. I think that one of the things that that scares me and I've had friends go through this is that when you are on the smaller side, so say if you're naturally like 125, there is pressure for you to, even though you are under the max and even though you are under the average, there can be pressure to be the weight maker and to lose even more weight. Like even if you're perfectly happy and healthy at 125, if the coach wants someone to be in the boat who needs to be right at 130 pounds, you know, that's 4.4 pounds that you have to be then under average if it's a double or potentially even more if it's a quad. And so I actually had a friend go through something like that when she was on the national team where the coach basically was like, I am not going to deal with your weights. Like you guys need to figure that out amongst yourselves, which I think is honestly just unprofessional and negligent because that leads to a situation, which is what happened, where she was on the smaller side and she basically got bullied into losing all of this weight for these girls who are on the team who are a little more experienced than her which I think is just, and and it would be one thing, you know, if the coach had made the decision and they talked to a nutritionist and that's what everyone figured out was best for everyone, but to have it come from another athlete who was a little bit older and, and had, you know, been around a little bit longer, who was basically just like, I'm going to be at max, so you have to be whatever, 114 pounds or something crazy that's just negligent of the coach. And, and it was such a bad experience for her that she ended up leaving the sport completely, which is sad because she was very talented and a great person. And she was like, I'm, I never want to go through this again. And, and I don't think that that's uncommon. I had another girl come up to me in probably 2015 or 2016 at at a big regatta and it's called the head of the Charles. Everyone, like every rower goes, it's like a rower reunion and everyone goes to this one bar. And um, I actually had this girl come up to me in the bathroom and say, like, ask me how I was so happy. And this was when I was not rowing. I had just gone to the regatta to hang out and see everyone. And I was kind of like, what do you mean? Like, I'm so happy. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And she was like, how did you leave the sport and be so happy? Like, I'm miserable. I eat food and I immediately make myself throw up. Like, I'm being bullied by this coach to be at this certain weight and I just, I can't do it and I cry every day. And, you know, it's one of those things, you're girls, you're you're in a bathroom and you're drunk. And I don't even know if she, to this day, remembers the conversation, but I, I, just remember coming out of that thinking like, oh my gosh, like I hope she hears herself and hears what she's doing and and takes a step back or finds help or finds a new coach or something just to not have her go through that. Wow, that that's a tough story to hear. Yeah. And I I 
we're acquaintances. Like, I hope she's doing well, but I, I don't know. I don't, I, and that's one of those things where, you know, obviously sport is great and sport can be super empowering, but something like that can be damaging for a long time. I know that, you know, the powers that be in rowing are are thinking about getting rid of lightweight rowing. And I think people, people assume that myself and my husband, who was also a lightweight um, and was actually on the national team, would be like, oh my gosh, no, lightweight rowing is the best. Like, why would you ever get rid of it? We had such a great experience. And I think we're kind of both on the same page where like, yeah, we had opportunities we would not have had if the only option was, was open weight rowing. But at the same time, like we've seen so many people go through so many things like that, that maybe it is the right call. See, I think people should listen to me and have the short person class. (laughs) And so that's five, seven. (laughs) Yeah. That's funny because that's actually something that we were talking about at the races I was at the past couple of weekends is with my teammates who are high school coaches like, should there be a height requirement or, or something? But I think about one of my, one of my friends volunteered for the Stosbury Cup Regatta this year. And that's a huge high school race in Philly. It's kind of like the end of a lot of the high school seasons. Um, and she was placed at the weigh-in tent, which must've been extremely stressful, or I, I would not have liked that. And so she was saying that, you know, this this boat of eight girls, they all come up and do their weigh-ins, and one girl doesn't make weight. And it must have been, sometimes, it depends on the regatta, sometimes you only get one attempt to make weight, sometimes you get two, and it's within a certain time window, it really just depends. And I guess it was her second attempt, so that meant the boat had to scratch, and they couldn't race, and she said everyone was crying, and... She said it solidified in her mind that, at the very least, lightweight rowing should not exist at at the high school level. Yeah. And I can't imagine, like, I think of myself at 16 or 17, and if I had been the person to not make weight, I would have been devastated. And I think if I had been someone in the boat whose boat had to scratch because the person didn't make weight, like, I, I don't imagine I would have been very empathetic towards the person who couldn't make weight and and that just really worries me for you know is is that girl going to be okay in five years is she going to remember that forever does does her coach like there are coaches that would probably be so mean about that and is a high school coach really equipped to to have a conversation about like hey you're 16 your body is changing it's okay like it is what it is. Let's move on. Or are they going to be pissed that they had to scratch a boat? I, I, I don't know. I yeah. I mean, that girl could have grown three inches in the last week or something because yeah, she's in I, high school. Yeah, and so the, so I know that U.S. rowing is trying to make more um, more rules around lightweight rowing. So I think that there's some rule about how you have to weigh in within a certain number of pounds in the winter so that people don't go crazy and cut for Mm. the spring racing season. Um, I think you have to do it more than once. I'm not super clear on the rules, but I know that they have instituted 
rules within the last five years that that didn't exist before. Um, and then for high school rowing, there isn't any averaging. It's at least for for women. It, I think it's 130 pounds still. It might be 125, but but I know that there's no averaging. So I think that is also good. So I think like U.S. rowing and and the powers that be are taking a look at that and seeing you know if done the wrong way, this could be very damaging. Like let's try to if we're going to keep it let's try to make it as positive an, an experience as possible for the people who are actually naturally at this weight and not try to get someone to lose 25 pounds just to be in this boat i think the reason i'm having trouble with lightweight rowing and and our whole discussion is making it clearer is just that it seems like it's set up for failure i mean there's obviously there's going to be times when it's successful and it has been successful but there's just so many times when it goes just so terribly wrong yeah and i think i mean i think if you talk to someone who was better at making weight for lack of a better term their experience might be totally different and sure. you know they would tell you that their nutrition was dialed in and i will say like the lightweight women's double race at the olympics was by far the best rowing race of the entire Olympics. Like from gold medal to fifth place was one second spread, which is crazy. Like only in like the hundred meter sprint, I feel like you you see something like that. So it was an amazing race. It was great to watch it. And the announcers were talking about it saying, you know, this this was such a good race. Like we're sad that this division could potentially go away, but again, like the top lightweight women's boats were only four seconds off the top openweight women's boats. So, you know, their speculation was, okay, what if we let these people eat normally and not have to make weight? Could they be just as fast or faster? So I think that that's probably going to be a conversation that, that happens over the next four or five years in rowing. Well, let me ask you about the elite rowers. I mean, do you think that the women who make lightweight rowing boats at the elite level, you know, the Olympic level, world championships level, are they the women that can make weight easily? I honestly don't. I think it would really depend on the person. So an example of someone where it was potentially not easy is there is a New Zealand lightweight rower named Zoe McBride who just announced her retirement right before the Olympics, I think in, in March or April. And she was a world champion. She was super good at rowing and she like had a guaranteed seat at the Olympics, was a medal contender going into the Olympics. And, you know, three, four months out was like, this is too much. I'm struggling to make weight. Like I'm miserable. I cry all the time. I can't do this. And, you know, I'm sure people who have thought about going to the Olympics are like, oh my gosh, like she couldn't have just hung on for like three more months. And I know that when I was at the end of my rowing journey and I was nowhere near at that level, like I would, like I, I definitely cried all the time. I constantly thought about my weight. I weighed myself every single day. Like it was a good day if I was a certain weight and it was a bad day if I was not a certain weight. And then like by the time that weigh-ins would come up for racing, if I was really struggling to make weight, you know, there would be thoughts going through my head of, okay, is there a way that I can like 
injure myself just a little so that I would have to go to the hospital and then I would have an excuse to not go to this race. And, you know, it's like that's your thought for 30 seconds and then you're like, no, I'm committed to this. I love the sport. I'm going to do it. But when you're starting to have thoughts like that, I think that for me was like, okay, like uh, this is not a positive thing in my life anymore. I need to take a step back. Remember to sign up for the Hear Her Sports newsletter from our website at hearhersports.com. Every other week, I share a few thoughts about the previous episode, ideas that stick with me after talking with a guest or have me wanting to continue the conversation. It's a great way to stay connected and find out more about what's happening in the world of women in sport. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because my last episode before the break was with Afri Keo, who is on the Irish team. And she mentioned, or we talked about the nutritionist that's part of Team Ireland. One of her teams that she works with is the rowing team. I just was surprised the level that this nutritionist was involved with the team. And I asked her about that. And she said, oh, I think all federations have someone like that. And that's certainly not my experience. So I was curious, you know, if you listened to that, what you had thought or what you had thought about what I just said. Yeah, I would bet that there's a nutritionist for the Olympic teams. But I think part of what's hard about rowing is that it's not like in the U.S., unlike in other countries. And I, I don't know the specifics of Ireland, but I know like the U.K., it's it's very much funded and there are certain boat classes that are funded and there's a camp and the athletes live in the area where the camp is and you get an invite to camp and then there's a selection and that's kind of how you like make the team or or don't make the team. But for something like the lightweight double for men or women, it comes out of the club system, which is, and, and there has been camps, but they're not, they're not kind of sponsored as far as I know, at least, and and this is my experience when, when I was doing it, they're not really funded or sponsored. You kind of have to, like, get yourself there yourself and pay for your own housing. And, and so I would imagine in that scenario, those athletes do not have access to a nutritionist. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But, I mean, I don't know for sure. So at least at least in my experience, like rowing at the club level and and not being at that next level of of being on the national team, like i I definitely did not have access to something like that, right, right. Well, thank you. Is there anything that we didn't get to that that maybe I should have asked? I think the only thing that I would like to reiterate is that if you have listeners who do want to row lightweight and are interested in it, just making sure that they have the correct team behind them and, you know, research the coach and make sure they have access to a nutritionist and probably a therapist as well, honestly. Highly recommend therapy for athletes and non-athletes. I think that just being able to talk through certain things would have helped me a lot more when I was going through some of this and, and maybe would have made me realize a little bit sooner some of the the crazy things that I was putting my body through for the sake of a sport that I loved and still love, but was just not enjoying for a while.
I think it's interesting that you talk about the team because I think about that a lot. And, you know, looking back, yeah, I wish I had had a better team behind me. Mm -hmm. But I think it's hard at that moment to have the perspective to be like, oh, I really need a good team, especially when you're so young. Did you know people who had good teams? And how do you think that they managed to sort of collect those people? I honestly don't think that I did. That's a really good question. But I think part of sport and I, at least I've seen it in rowing. I don't, I don't know if it's the same in cycling is this like attitude that, okay, I'm tough. I'm gritty. I'm going to get through this by myself. And that's just not realistic or smart. Like I think that when you're young, you're just trying to do the best you can and you don't want to ask for help because you you could potentially see it as a weakness. So I I completely agree with that statement. I think even just having somebody to offer some perspective, you know, both perspective of age, but also perspective of not actually being in the thick of things when you're trying to make a high level team is incredibly valuable. Yeah, absolutely. When I stepped away from rowing at that level, I think part of it was because I started a new job that I really liked. And so I finally kind of had something else in my life that I could put my time and energy towards. And I started dating the person who is now my husband. And so like kind of having that all at the same time made it very easy for me to step away. And, you know, people don't always have like they don't always have the right team and they also don't really think about an exit plan which I think is very important in taking all your energy and time that was going into your sport and whether your exit plan is planned where it's like okay I'm going to retire at the end of this season or I'm going to retire at the end of this race or if it's an unplanned exit where you're injured or you're you know something like me, where I was just so burnt out and so depressed, I think without that exit plan, I would have had regrets and potentially gone back and tried to do it again. And I know that that would not have been the right choice for me. Given what you just said, how do you fit rowing into your life now and sort of what role does it take and how do you manage not to get to that same point of obsession? Yeah, so I think my husband will tell you that I am definitely still obsessed with rowing. <laughs> um, so I basically use it as my social life. The reason I got back into rowing after taking time off was I met a friend at a party and she was like, hey, we have this quad that we row. We're looking for another person and we drink mimosas after practice. And so I was like, okay, I can go to the boathouse once a week and row a quad with these people who seem fun and then drink mimosas. And then, you know, three months later, I was rowing three, four days a week again. And then I was like, okay, and I'm going to sign up for these races. And, and I, I got back into it very quickly because I think, like, one, I love the sport, but two, it also has become my social life. And so I actually live in Cleveland right now. I moved to Cleveland last August and the way that I met people was through rowing. And so the only people I really know in Cleveland besides my neighbors are people who I met through rowing and 
they are my friends and going to the boathouse is my social life. So it it's morphed into more than just like I do this sport and I'm putting in these meters to get fitter and faster. It's like, hey, let's go out and take out this double and let's chat about our lives for an hour. Kind of like going for coffee, except that you're like working out. So <laughs> I think rowing is definitely in my life to stay. I just, I love it too much. I never want to give it up again. But because it is my social life now as well, it just is so much lower stakes and just way more fun. Cool. Well, thanks. This has been really terrific. I really appreciate you spending the time. Oh, of course. Thank you for inviting me. This was a great conversation. And I hope that I provided your listeners with some insight into what it's like to be a rower. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. All right. Bye. And that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening again, if you are a regular listener, and for checking us out if you are new to the podcast. I'm so glad you found us. For all of you, if you liked what you heard, please share with your friends and colleagues. I'd love it if you told pretty much everyone you know. My guests and I are working hard to spread the word about the importance of women in sports. You can keep the stories alive by telling someone about them. We always have great shows coming up, so make sure to subscribe for free to hear her sports on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a thing. Until next time, bye-bye. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.